welcome to the Archives of Diseases of Childhood evidence-based podcast. The Archimedes section of the journal is here to answer all of your clinical queries. Well, not all of your clinical queries, but it could do if you sent in all of your clinical queries or checked our back catalogue or had mates that did clinical queries. In fact, why don't you do all of those things? Go back and have a look what we've done before. If there's a question that still hasn't been asked, why don't you and your pals get together and do the evidence-based answer to the question? Send it in, following the instructions on the website very closely, please, so that we don't have to get cross and be all school-teacherly-like and send it back with red pen on. And then, then we can see if you too can be one of the featured questions in the Archives podcast. Coming up today, we have a short section on the practice of evidence-based medicine, as usual, and then a couple of questions. And for a teaser, these are all about fluidy things. One of the challenges in seeking evidence to aid difficult clinical dilemmas is deciding which questions are amenable to study and, and what those might actually be. These are the elements of the triad of clinical expertise, best available research and the patient situation. And the preferences within that can really only be brought by individuals about the outcomes and the question and to some extent the research that's relevant because of the interventions that might be acceptable to the patient and the family. There was a quote recently from a Cochrane Confidence about the benefits of patient public involvement in research. It went, why do it? Because it might reduce the chance of the researcher making an absolute arse of themselves. You see, those with a condition may have a much clearer idea than a researcher or a clinical doctor about what it is in their life that needs to get better. And it isn't just researchers who need to heed this advice. If you are going to practice in an evidence-based way, you are going to have to ask the patients and families where their priorities lie. Take nausea and vomiting, for example. Now, I'm a paediatric oncologist, and I spend quite a lot of my time trying to get rid of nausea and vomiting. And, and, and mostly, that is a very sensible aim. But if there are patients who have intractable, terribly difficult to control vomiting, and the only therapies that would work to keep that vomiting under control would keep them asleep 22 out of 24 hours, it may be that that's not what they want to do. And there's other elements where we think that the science should be able to help, but, but be very careful about it. For example, the question may arise, yet again, which toddlers with wheeze should we prescribe oral steroids for? Now, it's not quite the question, does prednisolone improve symptoms in preschoolers with viral-induced wheeze? And it's not quite, which preschoolers will go on to develop atopic asthma? But it nods to both and it blends them together. You see, that's a difficult question to ask and it's a difficult question to answer. How could it be answered? Well, it could be looking at subgroups of large trials to see if there are those who are predictable responders to steroid. The people with the same feature that in the prednisolone arm got benefit and in the control arm didn't get benefit. But when you're doing this, beware the perils of pea fishing and the astounding ability of us medical types to uh, come up with a good reason why something is plausible, or indeed its exact opposite. 
be extra wary when a systematic review draws a subgroup meta-analysis. You've got to examine here closely for that uh, selective outcome reporting bias. That is, it only gets reported in studies that have, uh, say, an overall positive outcome or an overall negative outcome. So you've got to look up very, very carefully about that. That's sort of that intrinsic um, uh, publication bias thing. It may end up that the nearest you can get to an answer to like this question is is something like indirect answers and, and assuming stuff. So take the case that prednisolone is good for asthma, risk factor F is uh, is good to demonstrate which toddlers will go on to develop asthma, and so maybe we should give the prednisolone to the toddlers with the risk factor F because they're the ones who are going to get asthma, or maybe not maybe there is no toddler that would really benefit from steroids for his preschool wheeze but each approach to these challenging questions will have strengths and will have difficulties and your job in undertaking the practice of evidence-based medicine is to appraise all of the evidence that's there to draw it together with the preferences of the patients in front of you and to do the best job that you can at this point in time with the evidence that you have at the moment now, the first question that's being asked today is, do balanced fluids have benefits over 0.9% sodium chloride in the resuscitation of poorly children? This is a scenario of a two-year-old girl presented with fever, lethargy, reduced intake, being treated for presumed sepsis with a bolus of 20 mils per kilo of uh, saline given, uh, with the sort of features being tachycardia and low urine output. On the initial gas, a metabolic acidosis was noted with low bicarb levels. And then after the 0.9 bolus, she was started on intravenous fluids of a maintenance of 0.9 sodium chloride with additional 5% glucose. And then somebody, a nephrologist I would imagine, asked the question, was this the right thing to do? The authors of this are Anish Patel and Sally Unhutton, who are from uh, the Birmingham Women and Children's NHS Foundation Trust, otherwise known as the Birmingham Children's Hospital, and, you will not be surprised, from the Department of Paediatric Nephrology, because they like to ask complicated questions like, in a child, is there any benefit, outcome, of using balanced fluids, the intervention, against 0.9% sodium chloride as the comparison in intravenous fluids? What they did is they went away and looked on Cochrane for things like balanced fluid, plasma light, saline, 0% sodium chloride, and drew things together to see what they could find. They looked in Medline and used even more words like Ringers and Hartmans, and drew all this stuff together, and Cochrane came up with nothing uh, but one multicenter trial in adults, and 376 articles were identified in Medline, but four of them only really were relevant to this in the paediatric population. What they found was a very large trial of adults, 15,000 of them, in a cluster randomised fashion, looking at the adverse event of kidney problems and a couple of observational studies, including 30-odd thousand in a cohort study with drawing together information from a routinely collected data database, 890 children from septic shock from PICUs being drawn together again using the sorts of routinely collected data, and 100 children with gastroenteritis in an actual RCT 
looking at the outcomes when they were given uh, plasmolite, which is a type of balanced fluid thing against sodium chloride. And what these found was that the sodium chloride group had more markers of renal injury in the sort of uh, observational and in the RCTs. They also had those were demonstrating that a high chloride level, which is something that you more likely get in sodium chloride infusions versus these balanced infusions, seemed to have a more complicated course than those that didn't. Uh, and interestingly, but maybe to do with the observational nature of the data, there was a lower mortality, only just, but a lower mortality in those where balanced fluid was given rather than sodium chloride. Now, of course, all of these do have slightly weird fiddly bits to them. For example, when the balanced fluid group was looked at, it was actually that they were um, somehow longer in hospital, which which doesn't quite fit with the mortality rates. But it is interesting when you pull all this information together. What the studies do is that they take really quite large numbers of patients and they show differences between them. But it's a little unclear to know if the balanced fluids are a marker of something else or whether it's the balanced fluid themselves that are drawing things together. What the clinicians of writing this come to the conclusion is that they, the, the risk of hyperchloremia and metabolic acidosis with 0.9% sodium chloride is certainly higher. Mm-hmm. Strongly recommend that you do electrolytes daily, but I'm sure you'll be doing that anyway. There is some data to suggest that balanced fluids are better than plain sodium chloride, but the really important thing is that an isotonic fluid, and that is 0.9% saline or balanced fluids are used. And just reflecting back on the beginning of this, you'll notice that we had an Archimedes on that sometime before the actual guidance came out. Ahead of the curve we are, Archimedes, ahead of the curve. The last question comes from Mr Ravi Shah, a medical student at the University of Cambridge Medical School. And this again is to do with fluids, but this time the question is, does it really matter whether you use a relatively faster or a relatively slower rehydration rate in children with diabetic ketoacidosis. Now this is definitely a hot topic. The guidelines for the British Society of Paediatric Endocrinology and Diabetes for here on after the BISPED guidelines suggest a very slow way forwards after an initial resuscitation to sepsis or that sort of thing. And in adulthood there seems to be less of a fear of fluid infusion rates causing cerebral edema and 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 it's really quite confusing and so this chap went away and looked for the evidence for the question in children with DKA do conservative rates of rehydration decrease the risk of cerebral edema compared to a less conservative rate uh, Cochrane was searched again as was PubMed but this time also the web of science it was drawn together to come up with having searched through 170 odd different types of things to come up with an answer uh, a series of papers that had both RCT and cohort style designs to try to get to the bottom of this answer now we'll all know that cerebral edema is an extremely rare complication of DKA it's less than 1% of cases but when it happens it has significant mortality and it has significant morbidity 
the idea is that it's not so much the urgent fluid replacement as in the sort of the sepsis replacement of 10 to 20 mg per kilo in the boluses but but in the in the ongoing replacement of deficit Early on, there were a couple of case control studies that showed that the cerebral edema patients seemed to have a more rapid uh, fluid fluid rehydration regimes compared to those that didn't. And the severity of DKA was adjusted for, and whether it was the first presentation of diabetes, to try and get around that idea that maybe the ones that were more likely to get the edema were the ones that were more poorly, and therefore got the fluid in quicker because people were sort of more worried about them. But but apart from these early DKA, uh, DKA sort of based studies that were case control, the cohorts and, and the RCTs that follow on from this don't really show a difference at all. If anything, the RCT from Kupperman and and Pals shows that the higher rates of fluid administration may be more beneficial in those with severe DKA improving the neurological recovery time. Now, they're not amazing, these studies. They don't tell us in such incredible detail exactly the rates that fluid should be given in uh, and over what period of time. And they don't really report the fluid boluses that have been given beforehand. And so it's uncertain whether that's got a, a thing to play in there. Um, it, it, it's still not astoundingly clear. It's not a single drug against placebo type thing, for example. But when you pull all this evidence together, the clinical bottom line seems to be quite reasonable that the, the use of a more aggressive hourly fluid replacement, well, that is replacing half of the fluid deficit in the first 12 hours and then half in the next 24 hours, isn't associated with a higher incidence of neurological problems compared to using a 48-hour, much, much, much more gentle approach of giving the fluid replacement, and that it might even be a little bit better in terms of getting neurological improvement for those at the most severe DKA. So, a couple of fluidy Archimedes is this month. I hope that next month we'll be hearing more from you about our summaries of the evidence, the questions that you've got still unanswered, and whether or not it should be that we run a Christmas Archimedes looking only at reindeer-based evidence or not. But until next time, we hope you have a lovely time and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you for listening.